The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It's a privilege to uh, come before God's Word together. Hear what He has to say to us. Let's pray. Ask Him for help. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to hear you speak. Lord, we pray that as we come before your word, your Holy Spirit would be here powerfully and that you would speak a better sermon than I could ever speak, one that uh, for each individual person here, one that would hit them right where they are, that they would encounter you. They would hear you speak to them in a way that they just can't resist. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the best part of your word, the word that points to Jesus, the most loving merciful, wise, trustworthy, leader, teacher, savior, priest there could ever be. And so we pray that we could see him and, uh, and come to him and know him today as we come before your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Do you ever find yourself looking for some sort of rest, longing for rest. I would suspect that finding some sort of rest is a, is a common daydream for most of us. Um, and there's variety to it, right? What's it look like for you to long for rest? Uh, for some, maybe it's a financial situation you wish you could feel more secure about. Or maybe it's just this load of stress and anxiety You've never been able to shake. Or maybe it's, it's kind of rest in the future. You're dreaming of uh, some property somewhere someday with beauty, freedom. Or maybe you just want to be healthy again. You look, you long for rest. There's, there's many varieties of this longing, I'm sure. But I, uh, I think they have these things in common. Number one, in rest, we want relief, don't we? I just want relief from the... The pressure, the tension, the stress, the exertion, the, the enemies. Uh, also in rest, we want peace. And, and not just the absence of conflict, but you know, the biblical view of peace is that idea of thriving, where everything's where it's, it's like it's supposed to be. It's good. So we want relief, we want peace. We also want enjoyment. We want to see something beautiful. What is amazing to consider... I, I'm sure each one of you longs for rest somehow. It's amazing to consider this passage this morning. Uh, it's all about rest from start to finish. And it's actually God's invitation to you to enjoy his rest. God knows how important rest is for us. But this, this passage isn't just an invitation to you to enjoy his rest. It's also a challenge for us to consider what true rest really is and see what it takes to get in to that rest. How do you get into that rest? So our local church here, we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we remember it's written to a group of marginalized Jewish Christians in the first century. Life is very hard for them, as we see in this letter. And they're longing for rest, but like us, they're not always looking in the right place. So we want to hear what the author had to say to them, and as we hear that, we want to hear God's invitation to us 
But, but really, it's two things. It's God's invitation to you to enjoy his rest, and then also a strong encouragement on what to do now that you've had the invitation. So I want to see four things with you this morning. Number one, I uh, just want to observe or, or notice the layers of rest or the kinds of rest that are in this passage. Then number two, we have to see the anchor for our rest. Number three, we want to hear, and it's kind of a theological word, we want to hear the exhortations on this rest. Strong push on how you're going to respond to this rest. And then fourth, we're just going to see how that's what we're celebrating today in baptism. That's exactly what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the rest we have in Christ. So I want to see the layers of rest, the anchor of rest. Think about how to respond to this invitation of rest and then celebrate this rest in baptism. First of all, the layers of rest. If you study this passage, uh, rest, it's all about rest from start to finish, but, but rest comes in different, I don't know whether you use the word layers or flavors or varieties or, or aspects, but there's, there's different aspects to this rest. Uh, we've seen studying this book, Hebrews 3 to 4, the author of Hebrews here is talking to his congregation from Psalm 95. We took a, a deep dive into that last week. Psalm 95 is this historical psalm where the author is giving lessons to his present audience from a previous generation of Israelites. So he's saying, hey, let's, let's look at that, how they handled things and let's learn from them. That's what Psalm 95 is about. And so then the author of Hebrews is doing the same thing. He's, he's working from Psalm 95 for his audience hundreds and hundreds of years later. But just for context to understand, we see that that first generation of Israelites mentioned in Psalm 95, they were offered this incredible invitation to enjoy God's physical rest in the land God had promised them. So that's the first layer of rest, is this promise of physical rest. You've probably heard that the people of Israel were given this Sabbath day command, this command, one day a week. By, by the way, how many of you all, you, you enjoy the, the weekend? Anyone? Are you for, for that? God's idea, huh? God's idea. You need to rest. And so they were given this one day, no work. I want to I read to you, actually, from Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. And just think about this, this invitation to physical rest. Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It adds a new flavor to the idea of rest when you imagine being a slave and coming into a new land. I mean, slaves in Egypt didn't get to rest. They didn't have HR departments. Um, They didn't have a bill of rights. All they did was they worked, and they were forced to work. If they didn't do enough work, they paid for it. 
the injustice of that, right? The oppression of that. They're slaves. And now God is bringing them out. And this Sabbath day gives a picture of this new rest. It's a physical rest where no longer are they just under this oppression of constant labor. But they were to rest. And not only that, the whole society, rich or poor, they were all, it was all it's a mandated, everybody gets to rest because you see that picture of rest, did you notice? It's a picture of their freedom. It's a picture of their freedom. They're not under these brutal masters anymore. They're no longer slaves. And think of this in modern Western culture. Their identity is no longer only in their work. Some of you need to hear that. I need to hear that. You make it to a certain status. You finally became good enough. You finally are acceptable. You're finally qualified. If you reach what? If you reach the, the title, the savings, the notoriety, my identity's in my work. And you'll notice if your identity's in your work, you will never be able to rest. Ever been on vacation and your heart never goes on vacation? Why is it you can't rest? You don't know God's rest. So anyway, this first picture was invited to enjoy this physical rest. But in Psalm 95, and that's why the author's working from this passage, that first generation did not get to enjoy that invitation of rest. Why? They would not trust God to the point where they believed his word. They would not trust God to the point where they believed his word. So there's the physical rest. That's one layer of rest in this passage. But then there's a second rest. I want to call it the rest for the soul. So you imagine this author, Psalm 95, writing about God's rest, and he's thinking about this previous generation of Israelites, and he's talking about how they didn't, they didn't get the rest because they didn't believe God. They wouldn't believe him, despite all the evidence. And so, but, but then in the, from the perspective of the psalm, the psalmist is writing, hey, there's still a rest for us to get into. Now, what's interesting is the audience of Psalm 95, they have gotten into the physical rest, more or less. They are actually in the promised land now. And so the author of Psalm 95 is saying, well, just because you're in the promised land, that doesn't mean you have the real rest yet. Do you see? There's, there's still a deeper rest that you need. So what is it? What is it? And again, I just want to haunt you a little bit. Are you like me? Have you noticed that when your circumstance actually seems okay, you can't rest on the inside? There's no peace on the inside. Why? Why? You actually have, in a way, more of a physical rest than any ancient Israelite would have had. Why can't you rest? How, how? Well, well, here it is, the answer, Hebrews 4.4, 4, the author of this letter refers to Genesis 2.2, 2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, that's a weird idea, isn't it? What are you supposed to do with that? God rested. So what do you think? Is it because God is tired? It's an important question, because if your God gets tired, find another God. No, no, no. The biblical God, he never gets tired. He is all sufficient in himself. So why is he resting? Such an important question. And the, and the, the author of Hebrews sees it in here. Why is he 
resting. Well, Genesis chapter 1 shouts at you about the goodness of God's creation. What God does is good. It's good. It's good. It's beautiful. And so the rest here is a pause for satisfied enjoyment in the goodness of God and his work. Rest is a pause for satisfied enjoyment in the goodness of God and in his work. And uh, the author of Hebrews, I mean, he, he knows how to suck on a passage and, and milk it dry. He also notices that in Genesis 2, right, if you read Genesis 1, there's a day, there's an evening, the day ends. There's a day, there's an evening, the day ends. The seventh day where God rests, guess, what they're, guess what's missing? There's never an end. The day is still going, which means that rest is still occurring and still available. And friends, this is the deepest rest for the soul. This is where you will finally find rest from your need to find your identity in this, that, and the other thing. For that need to establish your security, that need to establish your goodness, and and the idea that you're righteous or that you've made it. No, the, the place to find rest for your soul is in the goodness of God and his work. Resting in his work, satisfied in his work, that's the deeper rest. So we've seen the physical rest, the soul rest, resting in God. There's also a future rest. See that in Hebrews 4.11. The author says, let us strive to enter that rest. So that means somehow the fullness of this rest, we haven't tasted it yet. And obviously, right? Obviously. We look at our lives. We haven't haven't tasted the fullness of that yet. But there's this promise, right? Start to finish in the Bible. Jesus made the promise. His apostles repeat that promise. The promise is when Jesus Christ returns, he will end all evil. He will end all injustice. He will renew creation. And that's where we will enjoy the ultimate rest. And it will bring all things together. This mixture of relational rest with one another. This, um, the physical rest. No more enemies. Relief. Beauty. Peace. The very presence of God. We will enjoy that together forever. It's in Hebrews eleven sixteen. Look at how the author puts it. You see, you have these heroes of faith, and he says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's where we as a church want all of us to go. That's where we want to be, the future rest. Aren't you ready for it? You ready to see Jesus? ready to have him renew all things. That's where we enjoy the rest. See, see the layers of rest in this passage. This is the physical expression of rest, rest for the soul, the future rest. Now the question, how do you get in? How do you get in to that rest? Because so, so much of the example in this passage is people not getting in. And it's not like God's saying, no, you can't have my rest. No, it's the opposite. God is inviting people to his rest by his grace and his people are saying i don't want your rest how do we get in well that's you've got to see the anchor of rest the anchor of our rest you've got to be tied to jesus jesus 
is how you get in. You know, the main point of the book of Hebrews is to thrill you with Jesus so that you'll come to him and you'll never leave. You'd be so thrilled with him, you'd come to him and you'd you'd never leave. And one way our author does that is show how Jesus is the true and ultimate priest. And you think, priest? Old-time religion? No, really. Um, Why does every religion seem to have a priest in one way or the other? That's because the human heart knows there is a distance between us and our sin and the holiness of God. And something has to bridge that distance. I can't bridge that distance. God has to bridge the distance. And so he has, ultimately, in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear what Jesus said to people. Look at what Jesus said. This is what Jesus is saying to you, Matthew eleven twenty eight. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. What's he saying? Come to me. Do you hear that? Come to me. And here's, here's the major qualification. This is what you have to do to be able to come to Jesus, okay? Come to me, all you who are, lab- who, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And look what he promises. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Look what he says about himself. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that we are laboring and laden without him. You think that's true about yourself? You think that's true? Are you striving to prove to yourself that you're a good enough person morally? Uh, professionally, spiritually. And, and maybe everyone around you thinks you're, you're fine and you look great ex- at the exterior, but in your heart, there's a labor, there's a wrestling. You know what haunts you in the morning. How do, I, how do I pay for what I've done? How do I become who I should become? This labor, this burden. And Jesus says, the only way you find that rest is to come to me. To come to me. And then look what he says. He's, he's gentle, he's kind, and then he's lowly. And that means he's just so accessible. So if you're sitting there, you're thinking, I'm too much, I'm too much of a failure. I've messed it up too many times. I've rebelled in too many ways. I can't come to Jesus. When he says, I'm lowly, that means the only thing, this is what Jesus is saying, the only thing keeping you from coming to me is you. Come to me. And then Hebrews 6, 19. Just a little bit away, the author of Hebrews says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus is the anchor of our rest. And you think about his work on our behalf. Jesus lived the perfect life of love for his father and his neighbor that we did not live. He's the only one righteous. And he did it for us to represent us, to save us. Then Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. In Christ, God is just, and he pours out the justice due to sin and rebellion. But God is also gracious in that the substitute takes on himself the wrath of God that I deserve, that we deserve for our sins. So that through faith in him and his resurrection and victory, we can be forgiven of all our sins counted righteous by a holy God, adopted as his children, all based not on my work, not on my goodness, not on your goodness, but in him, 
Can you sense the rest you have in the gospel? To rest in Christ and what he's done. And that's at the heart of real faith, is resting in the work of Jesus for you. He's the anchor of our rest. And so we've seen God's invitation to rest and the anchor of our rest. And then this passage, it's a punchy passage. It gives the audience a bunch of exhortations as to what they're going to do with God's invitation to rest. So at this church, we try to preach the Bible and what it says. That's what we're supposed to think about now. We're each supposed to ask ourselves, what am I doing with God's invitation to me to find my rest in his goodness, his grace, especially in the giving of his son? And if you're not a Christian with a, and you're here this morning, we're so happy you're here. We don't want you to feel awkward in any way. I guess what I'd say to, to, if that's you, what I'd say to you is, if you have intellectual objections or difficulties with claims of Christianity, it at least deserves that you give that serious thought and consideration. Jesus Christ has changed history. The evidence points to his literal resurrection from the dead. And God is offering you through Christ and Christ alone forgiveness of your sins, adoption as his child, and and a resting in his goodness. It deserves consideration. But the flavor of this passage, this is to people who have heard it and who have sort of claimed to believe it, and then they're not holding fast to that. And so he gives them, I'm going to give you uh, three exhortations. And, and, and again, this is, this is how you should respond to God's invitation of rest. So here they are. I'll tell them to you, and then we'll unpack them. Number one, fear the fake. Number two, strive to rest. Number three, take the cut. Fear the, fa- fear the fake, strive to rest, take the cut. And where do I get this? Look at Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 2. Fear the fake. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, unop- they were not united by faith with those who listened. So you see what the author's doing? He's making a comparison between two groups of people. The first comparison is that is that generation of Israelites who saw everything God did for them, saving them out of Egypt, bringing them to the doorstep of the promised land, and then they wouldn't believe his promise and go in and enjoy the rest. And it was despite every evidence you can possibly imagine. And so we're supposed to compare ourselves to them. Do you hear the comparison? They heard the message. Guess what? We've heard the message. They received the invitation to rest. We've received a better invitation to better rest. And and it's not like they were a bunch of uh, atheists. These are people who participated regularly in a religious community. This just points us back to that hard reality, right? How many of us sometimes we have problems with Jesus or with church because of what we'd call hypocrisy in the church? Anyone? 
okay? I just want you to know the Bible has problems with that as well. The Bible sees that that will be the case as well. The Bible knows that will occur as well. And here's the issue sometimes. The issue is those in the practicing community don't actually have a genuine faith in the message they've heard. And they don't receive the rest. And so the exhortation here, every once in a while we need to hear it. Most of you, I think, would say, yes, I believe Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in his word. Every once in a while, you need to ask, do you really believe? How would anyone know if you actually believed? So a lot we could say here, but just in brief, number one, real faith has specific content. Maybe you're, here, you're sitting here today saying, oh, I, be- I believe in God. And you know what? That's an important first step. And in the end, it does you nothing if that's all you have. It does you nothing. The, re- the true and living God has told you about himself and he has told you about the way he brings you to himself and that way is the message, the gospel message of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And so we're interested in far more, far more than you just thinking there's probably a God out there. I, I want far more than that. What I want you to see is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and He alone can save you from your sin because He's the only one who lived the perfect life, and you need that standing of righteousness from Him. He's the only one who could die on a cross for your sins, and He did, and you need that forgiveness from Him. He's the only one who rose from the dead in victory. You need Christ, and so real faith has the content of who Jesus is. But even as I say that, you could know the content on who Jesus is so well and still not have real faith. Because ultimately, real faith is a hard aspect, and it's the hard aspect of rest. Do you rest your need on Jesus' sufficiency, who he is and what he's done? And does that rest lead you to want to love him and obey him in concert with his people according to his word. So let's come to the message of this invitation to rest with a real faith. Let's fear fake faith. Second thing, second response, strive to rest. Hebrews 4, 9, so so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Then verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Strive, that doesn't feel like rest. Strive to enter rest. Is that like, you know, you're going to go on vacation, right? And the month before you go on vacation, you got to do a bunch of extra work so you can actually go on vacation. Is that what this is? I don't think so. The point here is that there's going to be lots of competitors auditioning for your heart's rest. Did you know that? There's voices auditioning, saying, trust me for the rest your soul needs. Some voices are like, trust yourself, find it in yourself. Really? Others this, others that. 
The point is there's so many competitors saying, rest here. And, and for the context of this book, right, we know the original audience of this letter, they're influenced to abandon their faith in Christ to go back to Jewish religion and the Mosaic law. So that's the, that's the voice they're hearing. Just leave Jesus behind. You can escape a lot of this persecution and marginalization. Rest in just the Old Testament without Christ. Do you hear? And so they have to strive. Here's the striving. We have to strive together to rest in Christ alone. We have to strive to put our rest in the right place. So we strive to rest, and that's so much of what our own community is about, right? Let's get back together again, and let's hear what God says. Let's get back together again. Let's see Jesus and what he says and who he is and what he's done. Let's make sure we rest in him. So fear fake faith, strive to rest in Christ alone. Third one, take the cut. I'll draw your eyes down to verses 12 to 13. The author says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged swords, piercing the division of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hmm. So what does the author compare the word of God to? A sword. If you think of the sharpest of swords, it cuts through, can cut through skin and expose muscle tissue. That's not what this sword does. This sword cuts hearts and exposes motives, mindsets, and desires. The Bible if you will listen, will expose you to yourself. And this being exposed, you know, it asks, what, what are your excuses for not trusting Jesus or for leaving him for something else? And you see this passage is emphasizing God knows you. He knows you so well. He, know, he describes you. And his word kind of catches you red-handed, you know, naked. That's, that's the right interpretation. It's the idea that our souls, our motives, our desires, our excuses, we don't even see ourselves with perfect clarity, but you can bet God sees you. He knows you. And his knowledge is like a sword. And so that's why I say you got to take the cut. What do I mean by that? Well, just draw your attention to one word that's really sobering. At the end of verse 13, the author says, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. That word exposed, that has the idea in it of a throat laid bare before execution. Exposed. And, and this is what it means. The word of God exposes me as guilty and worthy of justice. I'm exposed as worthy of death, really. It exposes me. I have not loved God as he deserves to be loved. I have not believed his word as he deserves to be believed. I have not loved my neighbor as he has said, maybe worse of all. I don't even just keep, I don't keep his standard for how I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I don't even keep my standard for how I'm supposed to love my neighbor. You don't need to raise your hand. Do any of you sit there Exposed just as I am. And if in your heart you're like, I don't buy this, 
Just for one moment, ask yourself, do you keep your own standard? Have you ever been just incredulously outraged at the way someone else has treated you when in your heart of hearts, you know good and well, you have done the same thing? As As we think of things that make us angry or outraged, it raises questions like, where is the standard you're getting for how people ought to treat one another? In our cultural moment, if it's just, oh, we, we kind of make it up as we go. Well, let's be honest. That means everything is relative, and no one can really say anything important about what's right or wrong. It's purely and only how you feel, and different people feel a different way. Good luck with the chaos. Is, is that really it? No, when your heart burns and saying, that person was wrong, God is speaking to you through your heart, and he is telling you there is a standard of truth and righteousness and justice. And if you'll listen, he is showing you, he's saying to you, you have not only broken your standard, you've broken mine. And then there's the dare. Here's the dare. Will you really look at yourself in light of God's standard? And that's what I mean by taking the cut. Taking the cut being exposed to yourself and seeing how you're undeserving, how you've been evil, how you're a sinner in need of salvation. Because if you put it off, if you say, I won't listen, then the verse here tells you, you're going to give an account to the God who made you one day. You are going to give an account and none of your excuses will work. You're gonna give an account. That cuts me. What are we to do? Well, we go back to the anchor. Because when you realize I've been exposed and I'm guilty, now what do I do? Do you remember what Jesus said? Come to me. Come to me. And then you realize he's the one who was exposed for you on the cross. He's the one who literally was naked and pierced on the cross. And he did that to save you and to save me. So that though before God I'm guilty, I look to Christ and what he's done and I can rest. Because God has counted me righteous in him. Because God has forgiven me completely in him, and I see his love for me as the one who did that, and I say, I want to believe you, and I want to follow you. I want to obey you because you're so good. That's rest for the soul, isn't it? It's rest for the soul in the goodness of God for you through Jesus Christ. And that really, friends, is what our sisters are celebrating today in their baptisms. They have each taken the cut. They know they need Jesus. And they have each looked to him for their rest. And so as we do baptism, you know, baptism is a a sign and a seal of an inward reality. I could say, you know, my my wedding ring here, it's, it's it's not my marriage. I'm still married when I take it off or when it falls off when I'm surfing. Um, but it's a sign that shows everyone I'm married. And so baptism is this sign and seal for the church. 
that this water, which, you know, throughout the Bible, water signifies judgment. As we get wet on purpose, it's this confession that, that we're sinners and that Jesus has saved us. His death is our death. And as we dry off from the water, Jesus rose for our salvation and his resurrection is our new life in Christ. And so it's a, it's a way to encourage faith that as every one of you who trusts Christ in here today, as every one of you sees the baptism, you know, just as the water hits the skin of these people confessing Christ, so Jesus' blood has washed away all of your sin. Just as they dry off, so Christ has risen with you in mind to bring you to the Father, and our rest is in him. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll celebrate some baptisms. Our Father, I just pray that you would be drawing us all to Christ, who he is and what he's done, that um, all the distractions could be cast aside and we just see him purely and clearly, and we'd be willing to come to him, that we would want to come to him because of who he is, his kindness, his mercy, the salvation that only he can bring. And Lord, as we celebrate faith in Christ and, and knowing you and your rest through him, Lord, we pray for our, uh, our precious sisters who are going to share their testimony, who are going to be baptized, that they would be encouraged, that they would um, know our love and our, and our support. And this time would be meaningful, Lord, to each one here for your glory and for our confidence in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fofcrc.com.